The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Mockingjay Part 1, the third movie in the four-part Hunger Games series. And joining me to talk about it is Slate's TV critic, Willa Paskin. Hey, Willa. Hey. Have we ever spoiled a movie together before? I can't I think remember. way before I even worked here. I think we maybe spoiled It's Complicated mm-hmm. with Meryl <laughs> Streep and Alec Baldwin. Which, as I remember, I completely loved with no real defense for why. Oh, it's lovable. It's completely That's charming. <laughs> Um, but it's very nice to be spoiling with you again. And I should I feel like I have to mention that we are the inaugural podcasters to be creating our work from this, I don't know what to call it, the new slate cast box. This dark it's like a black foam. box theater. Yeah, completely. It's, it's like the arty new little zone that's been constructed in the Slate office for um, the second podcast of the day being made at one time because Slate podcasts have now spiraled into such cosmic proportions. We have so many of them that we can't all use our main studio at the same time. So it's kind of cool to be in this dark foam room with you. <laughs> and uh, and breaking it in. We should, I know we should a be champagne talking bottle. in hushed voices, maybe. <laughs> Not too hushed. We gotta we gotta make it make ourselves heard. So Mockingjay, um, this is the third movie in a four part series from three books. So I've wanted to start off by talking about what Dan Coy's editor at Slate called uh, penultification, These, this uh, phenomenon of of taking the last book in a series, a popular beloved series that's being adapted into film, and dividing into two parts. Harry Potter did it. Who else has done it? Twilight did it. Twilight did it. And uh, well, I mean, I guess you could say Peter Jackson is doing it with The Hobbit but to an extreme degree, yeah, right? Divide, dividing a small, what, hundred something page book into three, three hour movies. That is going down a whole other road. But I wanted to talk about this more mainstream process of of chopping a book in half before we begin, because it sort of dooms this second to last movie in any series to being a setup movie. It has to be a placeholder. It can't satisfyingly resolve because it has to leave you coming back for more. And also because none of these books are overstuffed. It's not like they're like, oh, we had so much material, we had to break them in half. It's well, Harry Potter, arguably, that but, is a gigantic book. But it's like completely this financial decision, basically. So, especially in something like for this, for Mockingjay, where sort of the first half of the book is really a lot of setup, and there's a very clear second half that's very obviously cinematic and like a, an then action sequence. Then it's sort of all hell breaking loose, right. right? Because we should start out by saying, if you haven't read the Hunger Games book, that the last book, and this isn't giving too much away, is, is all about war. I mean, the, the, the conflict that's been set up over the course of the first two books and this dystopian society that's starting to have a rising rebel movement finally all explodes and turns into this giant civil war in the last book. So that's what we're getting set up for here. Right. And the setup for that is just a lot of sort of everyone positioning themselves. I mean, they had to make up an entire action sequence to sort of climax this film, like the whole... Explosion uh, of the dam sequence? The explosion of the dam and then the whole rescuing of PETA, where sort of Katniss is watching and we're getting everybody else, and the whole Finnick talking to Snow thing, that's all fabricated. And over. I mean, they did rescue PETA, but in the book, it's just like, it's happening while she's not there. She's worried about it. And then they're back. Um, and they so had, you mean turning it into a suspense sequence? Yeah, because they, they, they kind of needed like a final brouhaha. Right. And so to the degree that there's a, a problem to be solved in this penultimate chapter of the Hunger Games series, it's the problem of getting PETA out of captivity, right? Right. And who he may have been brainwashed while he's in he captivity. He definitely was brainwashed. Right. Tracker, tracker venom. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, 
And what else is the big conflict here? And essentially, oh, get, I mean, getting, getting Katniss on board with like being the Mockingjay, right? Like, Turning getting Katniss her, into the face of the revolution, right. essentially, and having her and figuring out how to do that in an effective way. Something that I felt was that the ball was sort of dropped on thematically is, which I guess could be picked up next time, is the idea that what's happening to Katniss is just a, a copy of what happened to her before, right? I mean, the idea that she is now part of these liberatory for, forces that are going to change society is somewhat undercut by the fact that she's being used as a as a propaganda as part of the propaganda arm of the rebellion the same way that she was used for the Hunger Games. Well, I mean, there is this whole tension in the whole movie about her concerns being small and human scale and related to the people that she loves, out to Peta, to Prim, to her mother, to Gail, at the expense sometimes, or not even at the expense, but in sort of just in terms of her weighing it against the good of the people. Like, she's not there with that yet. She wants, she still is really invested in her immediate loved ones. Um, and they you know, no one actually makes the case to her that way. Like, you have this bigger... I mean, they say she has a bigger part to play. But then she's like, I'll only do it if you forgive Peta. You know, like, she she's really still... Her heart is still in this micro Right. Place. She's not Joan of Arc. She's being posed as yeah. Joan of Arc and sort of turned into her in these propos, as they call them, propaganda videos. But she really is more of a – she's more like Britney Spears or something. I mean she's kind of a created <laughs> sensation, right? She's she a manufactured is, but, right. sensation. So and then she's a, she's a manufactured sensation. But then I, just in her inner life, it's something much more like individualistic than, than uh, – you know, it's not brain damaged like Britney Spears – that might <laughs> yeah. be kind of like rude, but, uh, you know, but she, her, just her incentives are still very concrete and based around her experience and not about ideology. Right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Jennifer Lawrence, too, before we get into this, because I would argue that at this point, it's essentially just Jennifer Lawrence's charisma that's carrying the series. I think I liked this episode less than you did. And uh, and what made it continue to be watchable and somewhat fun for me and made me at least want to come back for the next one is that Jennifer Lawrence has just become such a movie star that it's fun to just sort of watch her be. Well, it's funny because I think I probably did like it more than you did, but I thought her performance was maybe worse than you did. Like, I, I like watching her. I, I thought she did a good enough job to make me want to watch her. But I thought there was so much sort of like tremble cry emoting. I mean, it's sort of what she has to do that it almost sort of bordered on for me, there was a couple moments that kind of bordered on the full on, like, almost accidentally campy. Like, the sobbing, I I can't lose both of them. Like, you know, these close-ups on her face were Oh, yeah, every, whose arms is she sobbing in? Hamish? I think it must be Hamish, you know? And we were just like, okay, this is this is a lot, a lot. Oh, you know, and then also just, I can't lose both of them. That <laughs> bring us to our triangle conversation <laughs> for later. But I can't lose both of them to be, like, one of the dudes hearing that. Like, oh, great. I'm glad I'm half <laughs> yeah. of the party of people that you cannot bear totally. to lose. And then, and then just also, I you know, there's this funny thing there have been a couple movies lately, Birdman, the comeback, which isn't a movie but on HBO, where you have these actors having to play bad or good actors. Like they have to signal like this is me doing something that's bad or this is me doing something that's good. And it's really an impressive feat when they pull it off. Like I think Lisa Kudrow in the comeback, you're like, whoa, you are doing a really good job seeming like really good. Um, and I thought one of the problems with Birdman was that Michael Keaton, it wasn't always clear if he was doing good. But the thing about this with um, Jennifer Lawrence is like when she's supposed to be acting badly in the propos, like she did a good job acting badly. But then when she was supposed to be acting better in the sort of more authentic off the cuff ones, I was like – these don't seem different enough to me. Like, this still seems pretty stiff and, like, not great. But that might also be a function of the fact that, I mean, ultimately she what she's being asked to do is extremely artificial and sort of 
not very inspiring. I mean, the idea that these are things that inspired a nation seem kind of crazy yeah. because the the, the, the propos that are put together by the Julianne Moore character and the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, the leaders of this yeah. revolutionary movement, just ha- they have this very manufactured, you know, it's get out the vote on MTV kind of feeling. <laughs> totally. Even the ones that are supposed to be like genuinely rousing or she's genuinely moved and horrified by what the Capitol is doing, that they've bombed this hospital and they're going to come for you or, you know, that they've done what they've done to District 12, you know, or... Or her singing, you know. I think it must be just very hard to go from this register of this character that's basically like locks everything down to someone who is supposed to have these moments where she suddenly opens up. Um, and that might be totally realistic that when that person opens up, they still seem a little. Right. I mean, maybe the, the books by their nature can do that better because we can get Katniss's interior monologue and her conflicts about it. And also as, as uh, Miriam Cruel, who's a copy editor here, pointed out, in the books, like – the things that are going on in her interior monologue in this movie are insane and all over the place. Like she's just running like a crazy, jagged mountainscape of feeling and and having these epiphanies that I think there are quote unquote epiphanies where like when you're reading, you're like, oh, is this is this actually a huge insight? Like you realize they're using PETA in the movie. This happens, too, where she's like, I realize they're using PETA to get to me. And you're just sort of like, is that? Is that an epiphany? Like, <laughs> like that's, it hasn't been happening in every prior chapter. You're just like, that seems like what's happening, you know? Um, so. Yeah, well, in, in terms of J-Law's performance, just to wrap it up, I mean, I, I this is obviously not the most challenging role that she'll ever have. And particularly in this chapter, you know, she had so much great action in the earlier versions. When they were inside the biodome, you know, so actually fighting the Hunger Games, she had all kinds of individual moment-by-moment problems to solve. And here, really, again and again, she's forced to sort of confront suffering and react to it. You know, she's she's really passive. That is a really hard – that's actually really hard. Like, she, it is really challenging. I think this is a really challenging role, even though – it's like sort of superficial in some ways. Like that, as you like, that is really hard to do. Yeah, something that I, I said at the end of my review. I feel I sort of feel like I mean Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we're seeing here for the penultimate time. Actually, he'll be in yeah. the in the second Mockingjay movie too, but presumably will have a curtailed role because he died during the shooting of that one. But I was saying that you know, in a way, Jennifer Lawrence sort of feels like she's starting to work her way toward becoming that kind of actor that he is, who just because he put himself his all into everything, you know, there was sort of no such thing as a as a a bad role. There was no such thing as a minor character that he was just blowing his way through for the yeah. paycheck. And I think she's feeling that way too. And it just it makes you very sympathetic toward her. Yeah, totally. She's. I mean, she's. she really has it, <laughs> you know? All right. So granting that Jennifer Lawrence has it, stipulating, <laughs> do you want to just do a brief walkthrough of the story of this movie, such as it is? It shouldn't take long because this is a setup movie and not a whole lot happens. Yeah, let's do it. So essentially at the end of Catching Fire, Katniss inadvertently explodes the Hunger Games and is extracted by the rebels in District 13. Um, and she and PETA is not. And she and Finnick are taken to District 13. Finnick being another of the young tributes, right? right? Another of the Hunger Games players. Are taken to District 13 um, where they were bombed very, very heavily by the Capitol in the distant past. There's no life on the surface, but they have sort of siloed down into these bunkers and they have this operating militaristic defense society that is getting its forces ready to kind of wage war on the Capitol. Right. With Julianne Moore playing Alma Coyne, the leader, and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Plutarch Heavensby, who we previously thought was a Capitol flunky, but who is now either defected to the rebel side or was he just a double agent the whole time? I think time? he was a double agent. And BD is also – the Jeffrey Wright character, BD is also there. He was also extracted. So over the course of this – episode over the course of this movie, of this installment of the this film. This half movie, we might say. <laughs> um, 
basically the the District 13, the leadership of District 13, needs to convince at Katniss to become the sort of figurehead of the revolution and then to film all these propos, which are propaganda ads, to sort of disseminate to the districts to sort of foment revolution and Basically, the movie is sort of her going from them figuring out that she needs to be sort of doing live action to seem compelling and going visiting sort of site sites of atrocities to film these propos. Being followed by this uber hip video team that <laughs> yeah. completely cracked me up. These like very young videographers <laughs> totally. who have a sense around. of fashion. The only people who have any fashion in all of District 13 except for Effie. Yeah, it. worth <laughs> noting too because this series has so been about costume design and clothes right. and the incredible fashions of the Capitol that basically everyone is wearing olive drab jumpsuits the right. entire time. Totally. So then and then basically the, and the and Simultaneously, Katniss is extremely tortured because it's very clear that PETA, who is being used by the Capitol as sort of their counter to her revolutionary fervor, um, is being tortured. And sort of at the end of the film, they rescue him. And it turns out that he's been brainwashed. And there's a couple of really horrible scenes of him. She goes to see him because she hasn't seen him for you know weeks and is distraught. And he just strangles her and really strangles her. I mean, that scene was really horrible. I mean, I thought impressively horrible. Yeah. I mean, this is something just to touch on later when we talk about the ending and looking forward to the next chapter. But this the series is getting more and more brutal. I mean, I would have taken maybe an 11-year-old kid or something to the first two chapters. I would not take yeah. a child to this unless they were pretty sophisticated in their, their viewing and able to withstand, like, a really a lot of not just physical violence, but, like, visions of mass brutality and kind I mean, there's of state a, there's terror. A, there's like a... I mean, District 12 has been turned into a killing field. There is, like, shots of cremated skeletons, like thousands of yeah, them. Yeah, there's, there's shots that kind of evoke the Holocaust yeah. with piles of skeletons, and there's point-blank executions with people with bags over their heads. I mean, it really looks like, you know, there's moments where you feel like you're in either Dachau or Guantanamo. Yeah. And then we end on this image that I thought the ending was really a strange place to chop off the book, yeah. but you've read Mockingjay, reread it more recently than me. So tell me what you thought about the ending and what the ending is. So the very end of the film is um, they've sort of successfully rescued PETA and uh, Joanna and Anna, who's Phoenix love interest. They've, they've gone into the Capitol. Um, they've come out alive. It seems that with the Capitol's implicit permission to leave. Um, and PETA's been... Right, re- they let them, the Capitol let because, them go. Because PETA's sort of been weaponized, essentially. Um, and... Alma Coyne, we hear, giving a speech, the president giving a speech to everyone in District 13 about how they've sort of – they've rescued these tributes um, and they're sort of making progress. And it's cut with footage of Katniss walking – Getting from, out of her hospital bed, right? Right. Getting out of her hospital bed, this – you know, walking towards sort of like this very bright, bright fluorescent light behind glass – you know, we keep cutting back and forth. And then she see, we come to the, win, you know, the window of the room and you see PETA chained to the bed, you know, or handcuffed to the bed with soft restraints, just screaming. Like you a just, rabid dog. Just thrashing around. You can't hear him, but just, you know, possessed out of his mind. Must kill Katniss. You know, really, really horrible. Her face, like, cut to the end of the movie. And just really bleak. I mean, bleak, 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 bleak. Where would you have chopped the the book? Would you have put well, it there? I, I unfortunately maybe this I may be biased because I thought about this too much like going in. Um, I think they basically had to end the movie there. I thought they could have ended it on him choking her. That's which, what I thought too. Which maybe would have been almost too cliffhangery in a way. Like I could imagine if it ended at that moment of the scene. Of but him you choke. get no new information from him. Totally in the bed. It's just, but it's just like it would have just been so abrupt. Because uh, there's that way that with these movies you just are like. 
when they do the real just cliffhanger cliffhanger you feel so don't doesn't it make you feel so cheap it makes me feel so cheap sometimes when it's like the movie's like gotcha come back for more late like i almost want the five minute beat just so i can like calm down and and be like okay i can see how i can live without you for a year but it's a very very disturbing image to end a movie on maybe even more disturbing than the contact between them because at least that's their encounter yeah. but something about him like isolated in in restraints and just foaming at the mouth yeah. is a horrible but that's why i thought end. it was great i mean i knowing also what comes next i i didn't think they had much of a choice like basically the next book is about one sort of sustained military action. I mean, there'll be another military. There's a smaller military action and then a, a huge one. And and you, I knew that that had to be the last book. So I was expecting it to end around here. And I do just think, I think there's just something about, there just seems like there's some chutzpah to this ser- franchise in a way that I really respect, which is like, it's like, I know this is kind of this YA book and it stars Jennifer Lawrence and they're hugely successful and it's going to be really, really, really messed up. Like messed up beyond beyond our what we could get away with being so much less messed up and it's still seeming like pretty dark yeah yeah i mean and in that sense i think it's pretty faithful to the books i mean it reminds me a bit of the harry potter movies in that way i don't think any of the the hunger games movies have quite touched me as much as the harry potters but maybe that's just my preference for that franchise but it's similar in the sense that it is sort of for fans only it's pretty faithful to the books including in tone and there's not really a sense of pandering or glossing over or trying to bring in new people who didn't like the hunger games already right there, I mean, that, that, that leaves you a huge audience, right? <laughs> who are those people? <laughs> okay, so we were just, before we started taping, we, you mentioned briefly, and I want you to elaborate on it, that the Twilight love triangle and the Hunger Games love triangle are not really comparable, even though both of them are sort of about, you know, this girl taking forever to decide between two inexplicably devoted guys who never seem to just say, fuck this and walk off. Totally. Well, so Twilight is a love triangle. Like, that is what it is. There's a vampire and there's a werewolf, but, like, the actual narrative engine of... That whole series is Bella's love affair with Edward. Hunger Games, you know, it could very easily exist in certain ways without Katniss being in love with either of those guys. It's like this horrible dystopic, like, world that's descending into civil war that the, that the romance is almost like an escape valve for. And it's not even central to Katniss's understanding of herself. Like, she doesn't, you know, she kind of, she, like, loves Gail maybe not as much as she should or he wants her to. She doesn't love Peta as much as he wants him to. I mean, they're just she's very genuinely conflicted. It's not it's not the heart, I don't think, in a way of of what's happening, of the action, certainly. And and maybe just even it's not even like she's really the focal point, um, and not her relationships of this series. So obviously it sort of the the triangle like for marketing reasons, for just sort of like fun reasons, <laughs> fits into this love triangle scheme that has been around not just from Twilight but from everything forever and you kind of want to play like Team Gale and Team Peta. But there's a way that the boys are really, I think, ancillary um, to just Katniss in these movies and even as we watch them thinking so much about who she's going to end up with, it sort of like isn't the point basically. Yeah, I guess I guess that is certainly true because Twilight so obsessively returns to that question. But there's something to me about yes, the, the love triangle. Yes, it's an ancient you know model in in romantic dramas and going back before that. But this particular kind of teen love triangle where the woman is the protagonist and she's choosing between these two men that are just sort of sitting there waiting on silver platters indefinitely. I'm just I'm fascinated by that right. and the appeal of it to teen girls. And wondering also was there anything like that when we were teen girls? Is there something about now that we want that story? I just wonder why why that's a story that there's such a hunger for. I mean that sort of speaks to the way that Katniss also like – 
is just really awesome as a, as a sort of heroine, as a sort of fictitious heroine. I mean, Manola Dargis in the Times is like obsessed with Katniss as this really like different kind of superhero. Did she like this movie? She did. And she's written every time she writes about Hunger Games and she's right. And all the anytime she's sort of writing a cultural essay, you could just tell she like. So as soon as Hunger Games comes up on the Times, whatever <laughs> yeah, it is, the she's schedule, like, I she's got grabbing it. Yeah. And like, because I think she thinks Katniss is really unique. And Katniss is really unique because, I mean, I think this was pointed out by someone here last time around, like PETA is so in the quote unquote girl part, right? Like he's adoring no matter what. He bakes cupcakes. He bakes cupcakes. He's the nurturer. He's the one who can talk. He's the one who listens. He, You know, and Katniss is sort of the fickle male who just is deciding if she maybe likes this other side piece who's cuter or better. I mean, I do think one of the things that's also problematic for me about the love triangle in the movies is I just – and this is so shallow but so real. I find – Josh Hutcherson and Liam Hemsworth so unevenly cast mm-hmm. just in like sex appeal that it it weights this thing. I mean, the triangle is weighted towards PETA, but it weights it back towards Gale in this way. You almost just wish it wouldn't. Like Josh Hutcherson is just not strapping enough for there to be like for it to feel kind of as love triangle. Yeah, it, it was to. a strange choice because he already is the more frail character, yeah. right? But he's so unrugged, the guy that they cast. Like, if you see pictures of them on a red carpet, <laughs> yeah. it, he's Lawrence tiny. Is like he's a dog. tiny man. I mean, nothing against Josh Hutcherson, but he is a tiny little man. Right. And in this episode in particular, the tiny little man is held prisoner the entire right. time and is, you know, has been brainwashed and has no control even over the words that he's uttering on TV to Stanley Tucci. Yeah. And so there really is a sense that he's kind of a cipher. And so I sort of felt that her... You know, incredible drive to rescue him and her guilt toward him, even when he starts to turn against her and turn against the revolution and say these things on TV that make it seem like he's gone over to the the dark side. It almost seemed more like a pity, you know, no, totally out of pity. And in a weird way, that's almost like it's possible to think that's actually what it is. I have a friend who is really team Gail and she basically is like, this is a co- <laughs> this is a conversation between like sex and romance and sort of like companionate settling because you basically have horrible PTSD. The first being Gail and the second being PETA. And obviously, when you put it that way, then how could you not be Team Gail? But the thing... I but not- isn't Liam Hemsworth also so incredibly charismaless? Yeah. I mean, he's he's, such sort of a, like he's a, a hunk, but he's literally a like hunk. A he's like a hunk yeah. of flesh. Right, totally. But, I, you know, in the books, I sort of... I thought that... Reading the books, I sort of thought that dichotomy between, like, sex and settling was like is not really what's there but when you actually just with the casting a little bit it sort of makes it makes that come to life a little more than you than i than i would want it to and so then it does then it sort of complicates itself triangle this whole way which is like oh maybe this you know she's so damaged that these things the things that are important to us watching love triangles aren't important to her because she needs to be safe. And PETA, who is this sort of relatively wimpy, very sweet and adoring man, is like the safe choice, which she actually needs because she's li- at when this is all this thing is going to be over because of just how horrible it's been. So having talked about Jennifer Lawrence a bit, is there anyone else whose performance you want to note or somebody whose casting you think is particularly right or wrong? Like, what do you think of the cast? That's been put I actually together? thought Elizabeth Banks was really continues to be pretty delightful um and this kind of had a she had like a different note to play um than she has she so she's effie trinket who's the sort of um the wardrobe stylist inane consultant for Peta and katniss uh and she's been this kind of ridiculous capital figure who is con- try always trying to boss them around and katniss sort of uh bridles against her but has has shown up in district 13 it's been reduced to you know wearing um 
and she has none of her wigs. She's wearing, she, what is she, what is, what she manages to style her yeah. jumpsuit, though, yeah. interestingly. She's Amazingly. got like, fingerless gloves and sunglasses and stuff. So she still manages to have this kind of decadent turban, movie exactly. star feeling like she's sitting by a pool totally. sipping a martini. And she bunker. was like, she's like the only real note of comedy kind of in the whole. And she gets to play some real comedy here yeah. because she's sort of boohooing about the lack of, of accoutrements. But it was the idea that she defected willingly from the I don't. I think they might have just taken her. I don't think she. Also, I think that this. I think that this was taken out of the film, but in my recollection is that she, and I think there's actually a couple other um, of Candace's sort of fashion people have also ended up in District 13 and kind of stumbles upon them like living kind of in imprisoned, like maybe living in their own urine and rags kind of situation and then sort of freeze, like gets them to help her, like helps them in their situation in District 13 that they're it's not quite as um, pleasant as it seemed in this film. And then I think the other performance to note, and maybe this, again, is just my sadness and, and how much I'm going to miss seeing him on screens, but Philip Seymour Hoffman as Plutarch Heavensby really brings something, too. I mean, his, his lines on paper are pretty standard. He essentially sort of sits around at these strategy meetings advising Katniss on what she has to do to, to become the face of the revolution. But there's something about the way he plays it. I just I love that he's often got this sort of wry smile as she's misbehaving and not wanting, not doing anything that they want her to do, that he that there's this sense that he he respects her, you know, the, the, that he understands that the very rebellious spirit that's making her so unmanageable and so difficult to negotiate with is what's going to make her be able to be the face of the revolution. Obviously, his death like colors the way that I saw that performance. I thought that the movie is dedicated to him and it's actually very sweet that it's dedicated to him. Um, you know, he didn't have very much to do. <laughs> yeah, he's sitting around at tables like everybody else is. But I always I always had my eye on him in those group yeah. scenes just to kind of see his almost sort of affectionate disgust at her, yeah. at her difficulty to work with. Totally. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, just because it's something that I walked out humming, is the very haunting song, the little folk ballad that Jennifer Lawrence sings that Katniss is asked to sing in one of the, the videos and that becomes the rallying cry of the revolution. And during the bit, the one big action scene of the movie, which is the explosion of this dam at the Capitol – there's this whole group of people marching, singing this song that somehow they managed to write a song that really does sound to me well, like I think some the ancient words, ballad. The words are from the book, right? Like it's a song her father taught her while she was hunting. Oh, yeah, you're like right. The, the, word, the words per se are in the book, like those exact I words. Think, I think the verses, like the hanging So the that's tree. why, because I looked at the credits at the end and, and Suzanne Collins was credited. So I guess they just yeah. lifted the words and they found a really nice melody But they did a really them. good job. And they Jennifer did. Lawrence can kind of sing, which yeah. made me wish she would do a musical or something. I mean, she's <laughs> just carrying a simple tune, but she does it quite nicely. Yeah, she did do it quite nicely. That was a really great scene, like a really evocative, moving sort of scene. And somehow the idea of making it into that kind of traditional ballad, I don't know, it just it just gave a sort of history to the mm-hmm. to the country. It made you feel that there's sort of a, a Panem, you know, song book that we never <laughs> right. hear about, a traditional culture of Panem songs, and yeah. it made me wish I knew more of them. Totally. I mean, there, it's actually interesting, you know, the... The three note whistle, like the do do do, whatever it is that the is Mockingjay it, song, the Mocking, right. you know that also they've used so effectively. I mean, they use it in the trailers for the film, and then they used it in the propos. It like ends them too. It's just a kind of cute touch, and and I just think like that that whist that that whistling, it's like a great music cue. It just. It it makes you it kind of makes me. I wish late. we had a musician in here to talk about this, but it sounds a lot like the uh, Close Encounters of the, of the Third Kind mm-hmm. little four four note um, theme as well. And I wonder if there's something about those intervals that sort of you know like the haunting um, follow my get follow bro- my lead, make a mashed potato mountain. It. It's a good question. Okay, well, is there anything else we want to cover? Looking forward to the next one before we wrap Mockingjay Part Two. It's opening in November, one year from now. It's going to be super brutal. <laughs> I mean, so brutal. So brutal. Are you going to be sad to see the series come to an end? 
No, I mean it's it should it should end. I think also it's been really good. Like I think the last movie, Catching Fire, was good. I like this movie. I expect the finale to be good. I, I I can't really imagine a better version. Yeah, you're just glad it exists. Yeah, I would say I feel the same. All right, so Willa, in November 2015, when Mockingjay Part Two comes out, will you come back to this black phone box with me and spoil it again? Oh my God, my pleasure. All right, it's a date. Our producer is Chris Wade. What did we what do we call Joel, the managing producer? Managing producer. <coughs> Our producer is Chris Wade. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Dana Stevens for Slate.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.